Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 13 being recorded on Tuesday, February 9th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. Happy episode 13. I think this is going to be a lucky one for us. I, I do indeed, and I think it's also our special Valentine's Day edition as uh, uh, we won't talk again before the big day comes. Are you ready? I am. Happy Valentine's Day. This podcast is your Valentine's Day gift, so boom, there it is. I'm happy to report it's exactly what I wanted. Good, good. Sadly, it may not be what my wife wants. <laughs> Honey, if you're listening, I have a huge surprise all planned out, and I, I haven't procrastinated at all. Good, good. Depends on when she listens, I guess. Exactly. The odds of her listening are slim and none. Good. The uh, It's also, we're fresh on the heels of the Super Bowl. Did you get to watch the big game? I did. I'm a, I'm a football guy anyway. I, I um, have this annual battle in futility in the Razorfish fantasy football league. So I was I was uh, interested in the game and obviously in the in the ad business it's quite buzzy to talk about uh, the winners and the losers in the on the ad side of the fence. Yeah, I thought there's a couple interesting e-commerce kind of uh, companies that came out. Um, so PayPal had their first Super Bowl ad. They talked about new money, which was kind of interesting. When I was watching it, um, some of the people I was watching it with was like, is this an ad for Bitcoin? So it's kind of funny. Um, and then two of the web uh, kind of site hosting, and, and they all offer e-commerce carts uh, advertised, Squarespace and Wix. Um, and then one of the big ones was Amazon had their first Super Bowl ad. And ironically, it was not for books or anything really e-commerce. It was for the Echo. And then did you see any other ads out there? Uh, I did. The uh, Dollar Shave Club ran an ad and sort of a kind of cool inside story. Most of the ads at the Super Bowl, you know about the buys in advance. Um, and so companies are kind of transparent about it and you know they have the space. And, you know, these days, because you want to get maximum buzz for the ad, the majority of the ads are released well in advance to sort of get some pre-hype. But the Dollar Shave Club guys actually kept the buy very close to the vest. And I think they did not let their competitive advertisers know that they had a slot and it ran in the first quarter. And then Schick, who they directly compete with, had a fourth quarter ad. So they, I think they kind of cleverly got to surprise and preempt uh, Schick with what I thought was kind of a fun, clever ad. Cool. I, I saw an update like two months ago that they had started to take kind of a material part of the shaving business. Um, and the thing I saw said kind of north of 10%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but I think it was actually enough to disrupt the Schick and Gillette guys. Have, have you heard an update on how they're doing? Yeah, absolutely. The, I don't think there's perfect data. Like, I don't think uh, any of the the consumer tracking companies explicitly track razors, but the best data out there seems to uh, indicate that they probably have passed Schick as the number two razor in America. So they're they're a distant second to Gillette, but that's a pretty big deal for a a subscription only direct to consumer only you know digitally native brand that you know largely started as viral marketing of course now they're at the opposite end of the spectrum with their own super bowl ad being able to you know become number 2 in a in a highly competitive market is is uh, very impressive yeah, and it kind of, you know, one of the things we've talked about the last couple of podcasts is this this kind of story arc out there that, um, you know, these experimental models in e-commerce are dying and largely flash sales and subscription models are being cited because of, on the flash sales side, because of Zulily and Gilt, and then on the subscription because of some of the layoffs going on at Birchbox and whatnot. So it is interesting to kind of an example that kind of counteracts that and shows a company that has a pretty simple product and a subscription, but it's really resonating with consumers. I think there are more and more examples that there could be some legs in the subscriptions. Obviously, they're pure subscription. I know we want to talk a little bit more about the Super Bowl ads, but there are rumors that the Honest Company is getting ready for an IPO. And so they're starting to disclose some of their base financials. And, you know, they're about 60% direct to consumer, 40% uh, wholesale distribution. This is the 
the consumer products company that Jessica Alba started that, you know, is primarily organic and uh, products that are good for you and good for the earth. But what I what was interesting that I did not realize is over 50 percent of their direct revenue is subscription as well. Yeah, and it's a lot of the consumables like the diapers and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. But again, I think there's more and more evidence that consumers are happy to save time and uh, take advantage of the deals that are, you know, tend to be offered in exchange for these recurring revenue models. And, and for a brand, if you're Dollar Shave Club, you get up every morning and you have all those subscribers in the bank. You don't have to earn all those sales every single week or every single quarter, which is uh, certainly a luxurious way to go if you can pull it off. Yeah, it's like a sh- shaving as a uh, service kind of thing. Exactly. Like SaaS. Uh, going back to Super Bowl, though, uh, A, one final point on Dollar Shave Club. I'm sure it irked a lot of uh, the folks in the creative side of the the agency world. I They obviously famously produced their own video that went hugely viral that launched the whole company. And my understanding is they produced their Super Bowl ad in-house as well. So um, kudos to them for being a great content creator and publisher in, a, in addition to uh, being a pretty savvy business. It's pretty um, pretty surprising because it had like an animated razor that seemed to be pretty, you know, it wasn't Mickey Mouse or anything. It seemed to be Pixar quality kind of a thing. Yeah, I do think one of the changes in the advertising world is that a ton of that work, even for the biggest creative agencies, gets outsourced to, you know, this huge network of super talented freelancers. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it is the sort of the democratization of creative that you – you can now do an independent production and, you know, get get great animation or 3D rendering or, you know, any, any of those those specialty disciplines that you used to have to have a super expensive in-house team to do. Cool. One stat I saw was um, this isn't an ad, but it was kind of just a stat around the Super Bowl I thought was interesting because we, we covered a lot on the podcast here. Uh, it said that uh, they track Google, I think, released this, and I saw it on uh, Search Engine Land. Um, Google said that this year, 82% of the the, ad, the searches kind of related to ads were on mobile, and that was up from 70% last year. So, you know, a full 12% higher year over year. So that, that's pretty interesting stat. Not, not surprising, but you know, pretty interesting that, that people are dual screening it with the smartphone now and not tablets or, or you know, normal desktops. Yeah, no, that to me goes in the category of, of very validating. It's exactly what you'd expect that, you know, we're all second screening on that mobile phone. And so it makes perfect sense that, that the use cases would all be mobile. But it, uh, it it's very validating and reaffirming that you see like, oh, my God, 82 percent. And that was uh, that was like seven million searches just during the game. Um, so that was certainly impressive. Uh, one thing I like to track is what the call to actions are in these ads. And so, you know, if you go back in time to kind of the the uh, five or six years ago, there was this new fad that for the first time you could have a call to action in a, a broadcast ad. Like it used to be that the whole goal was to make you feel better about Budweiser or feel better about um, – Doritos, and then hopefully you'd later go to the store and make that purchase. But with the advent of the internet, you could have a direct call to action. And the first calls to action we saw tended to be to go to social networks and favorite somebody. So that, you know, five or six years ago, there were a huge number of ads that were like, and go to our Facebook page and like us. And it was huge advertisers like the the Miller Lights and the Doritos and the Nikes, whose call to action was become our fan on Facebook, which at the time I thought was crazy because Nike doesn't own their Facebook page. They're, you know, not, not to be too, uh, put too fine a point on it, but you're essentially a digital sharecropper on Facebook. Like that's a page Facebook owns and any advertiser can buy targeted audiences of people that like your page. Um, and Nike spending, uh, today dollar equivalent of like $3.5 million dollars to send a bunch of people to Facebook, that just seemed like um, not super prudent in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so you fast forward to today, and there are now people that are uh, doing the work for us and keeping track of what the call to action is in all these ads. And I want to say 42% of the ads had a direct call to action, and uh, overwhelmingly that, that call to action is a hashtag. Um, and it's actually down a little bit from last year, but I would sort of call it a plateau. 
And I, I guess what's what's interesting about tracking those, Twitter was the most popular platform, but when they first started seeing hashtags, they're like, oh my gosh, hashtags are a Twitter thing. We'll attribute all the, the hashtags to Twitter. And of course, these days, the hashtags are used on a bunch of the platforms. Uh, they're sort of nominally used on Facebook, and they're for sure used on Instagram. So now when you count calls to action and the ad has a hashtag, you have to kind of figure out what what's, what uh, social network they even intended you to go to. And it, it's, it's kind of a neck-and-neck neck Twitter and Facebook thing at the moment. Did you take any actions on any ads during uh, the Super Bowl? I did not. I you know, generally would search for stuff and try to figure out if they were doing anything special on Twitter or anything. Was uh, was Instagram in the mix at all on that? You know, there were. Uh, there, were three? there were a few um, folks that referenced Instagram in the, the ads. I don't remember the exact breakdown. Uh, in a more professional podcast, I probably would have reviewed those numbers right before the show. Um, cool. Would have been a prudent thing to do, but we'll put the stats in the show notes so we can see how how uh, right or wrong my my imperfect memory is on that on that there was one brand also and I I'm not going to remember who they were either that did do a a campaign or a promotion so they had a contest so the more you retweeted during the Super Bowl the the more um insurance thank you yes and I have not seen any data yet on how successful that was I saw an article where they won the social media because they got something like um, between 800,000 and a million retweets from that campaign. And the other thing they did was they bought pre and post ads, which are evidently much, much cheaper. Yeah. So you book in the Super Bowl, you get all that uh, user generated amplification during the the Super Bowl. And I want to say that this year, unlike past years, they didn't have a lot of competition for those interactive contests. And so they kind of had that feel to themselves, which probably worked out well for them. Yeah. Yeah. The only glitch I think was that both Facebook and Twitter had uh, trouble keeping up with all the activity during the Super Bowl. Yeah. It, so in years past, when more brands tried to do these kind of interactive contests and, you know, uh, it might've been two years ago that Coke did a pretty extravagant contest that, you know, was on a bunch of Coke landing pages and it's just a huge spike in volume. And so it, it's technically challenging, to be perfect. And so I, you know, I think it's a, it's a terrifying prospect for a lot of it guys to, to run these, these contests. And if, you know, if you have a glitch at all, uh, you know, it's going to, it's going to turn into a real negative experience. Yeah. So the ad I did the most Google searches on was not actually an ad at the end of the game. After the Broncos won the game, they're interviewing Peyton Manning and he drops two Budweiser mentions in his, post-game interview. Well, you saw the first person you hugged was Papa John, too. Yeah, and and that, I mean, that felt like mildly authentic, I guess. You know, given how much money he's made off Papa John's, I would hug him, too. Yeah. But so when he's mentioning Budweiser, like, the first thing that jumps in your mind is, oh, that was a clever native ad. Budweiser paid him to say that, as, for example, Disneyland has for years for those guys. And Budweiser quickly disavowed it and said, hey, we're, we're thrilled that Peyton loves Budweiser, but we did not pay him to do that. And... Frankly, like the internet did not completely believe that that statement. You know, particularly if you listen to the interview, he drops Budweiser twice, and one of the times he starts to say beer, and then you can hear him correcting himself and say Budweiser, and you go, "Man, that's that seemed very intentional." And so then you had media writing back and forth: Did he or didn't he? You know, get money for it? And today I found out the real answer, and I'm kind of pissed that uh, more reporters didn't cover it, but Peyton Manning owns a Budweiser distributorship. Aha. I was going to say another way to play this would be to buy stock, right? Yeah, so he had a, he has a direct interest in the company. So, yeah, they didn't pay him. It's actually smarter to own equity than just kind of a one-time thing. So kudos to him. Yeah, very smart. Not not a, uh, a surprise that, that he is a savvy businessman and line of scrimmage audibler. Omaha. I kind of hope he retires, and I hope after he retires, he gives us a good explanation about what the heck Omaha actually actually means. Because <laughs> he's been, people have asked him, and he's super coy. Like, he, he has this clever answer. He's like, well, when we're on Bermuda grass and we're going against the wind, Omaha is our key for audibles. But when we're indoor stadiums, it's, you know, it's just yeah. kind of a funny little bit that he does. So it would be yeah. curious to, to hear what it really is. Maybe he just loves Warren Buffett steaks. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe just likes to throw it out there to confuse everybody. Exactly. I do know the people in Omaha are are big fans as a result. <laughs> 
Cool. That's all the uh, Super Bowl news I have. Have we seen anything else interesting going on? I have. I want to go from the Super Bowl of sports to the Super Bowl of women's apparel. Ah, all right. So I saw a funny article, which admittedly I know very little about, in the Washington Post. I think it was written by uh, Sarah uh, Hozak. And Halzak, and um, the premise was, hey, a bunch of the apparel companies, particularly that target uh, younger shoppers um, with mid-priced products, are really struggling, i.e. the Gaps and Abercrombies of the world, the Urban Outfitters of the world. And the premise of this article was the reason they're struggling is there have not been any new exciting fashion trends for women to get them excited and cause them to buy a bunch of product and you go on to read this article and it says that like the the core trend around pants are like a 10-year trend and we're at the end of the 10-year trend for skinny jeans and every woman has skinny denim in their closet so they're not spending as much and what the fashion re- industry really needs to get the gap back on track is a new fashion trend to drive incremental sales. Hmm. And my immediate reaction was that this felt like another example of a phenomenon that we've talked about a couple times on this show, that retailers and brands are coming up with a ton of creative reasons why their business is declining, and they all seem to be sort of overlooking the Amazonian elephant in the room, that, you know, gosh, maybe your business is declining not because of this fashion trend, but because Amazon is eating a bunch of your traditional business. Yeah. Yeah. We've seen weather, uh, currency headwinds, less tourists, all kinds of uh, explanations. But, um, you know, when it's when it's hitting everybody, it, it you know, that makes sense. But when it's not hitting a couple of companies or one company, you kind of say, is this really a, a systemic kind of a thing? And, and Amazon grew 26 percent. So it definitely didn't. The weather, the currency and the skinny jean thing didn't hurt Amazon. No, and Amazon disproportionately grew their their apparel business. So yeah, that certainly seemed interesting, and it just it and I admittedly know nothing about women's fashion trends, but it strained credibility to me that none of the thousands of small brands that sell women's apparel like thought to try a different trend, and they all simultaneously just stuck with this old tired skinny jeans trend. Like it just. It seems like that in the free market, there there would be some products out there that would really be outperforming because they they figured out the trend or created the next trend early. And it, it did cost me an hour of my life as I went down this rat hole of Google searches. And I did discover that the the tastemakers in the know are all predicting that the coulette pants is going to replace the skinny jean. Um, so, of course, I had to Google coulette uh, pants and, frankly, even how to pronounce them. But those are these... Um, kind of shorter pants that only come down to your ankle and, you know, potentially are more compatible with the trendy women's footwear of this season. Cool. Did so, you buy a pair? I did not, but you heard it here first. This could be a good Valentine's Day for all the hip guys on the show to go get their wives a pair of culottes. Exactly. I think you probably have to buy shoes. I'm not an expert on this, but I'm going to guess it's like a whole outfit in the making. I think it would be a Valentine's Day faux pas to get your significant other culottes without appropriate footwear. And probably a handbag, too. Exactly. And we should talk about some handbag manufacturers later in the show. Yeah, yeah. That's what we call uh, foreshadowing. Yeah, Dr- drama. Exactly. <laughs> dum, dum, dum. But before we do that, we should talk about some augmented reality, because I feel like that's one of the signature topics that we're known for. Yeah, there's a lot of news this week. The uh, the two things I saw, Google um, has been hiring in this area, and they've kind of played around with this cardboard thing, which uh, a lot of people thought was a joke or an April Fool thing at first, but then it turned out to be, quote unquote, real. Um, and then they distributed something like 3 million or 5 million to New York Times readers, and then another 3 million to every public school child in New York. Um, so if you go to New York, they definitely know about Google Cardboard. Uh, and then, um, so it looks like they're actually building a, a true headset now. Um, one of the articles I read is they're still going to go for kind of that low price point, and it's going to be made out of plastic and still still built on the premise that you would mount an Android phone in there, and it would just be the eye, eye component and, and a head kind of a thing. So that'll keep it, I would imagine, under kind of the $200 price point. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what they come up with. I have found Google Cardboard to be more useful than I might have expected it to be. And I, uh, you may remember, but over holiday, I bought a 
plastic version of the Google Cardboard that's actually made by Mattel under the the Viewmaster brand. And there's some fun, cool apps that even have some potential utility. And the the visual acuity when you put your iPhone in this thing is pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Um, you you know I haven't talked to the the listeners a lot about this, but I'm obviously very shy. Um, and really st- struggle to speak in front of public. And so one of the cool apps that we found is this public speaking app that lets you hold uh, your Google Cardboard or your Viewmaster up to your face and practice giving oration in front of a large audience. Fun. Yeah. Was it uh, Was it the same kind of experience as actually doing it? I thought it was pretty good. I mean, I'm somewhat joking. Uh, you and I both have to talk in front of groups quite a lot, but uh, obviously a lot of people do struggle with that, and I could easily imagine it um, helping to acclimate someone a little bit and get a little more comfortable. The The one thing that the, the version I tried didn't have is that I feel like they should shine some really bright spotlights in your face so you can't actually see all those people because that that's my usual experience when you get on one of those stages. Seems like you're. Uh, it'd be hard to get your timing right when the audience is just kind of standing, staring there. They're not reacting. Exactly, and of course, it's hard to feel cool holding that thing up to your face. Yeah, yeah. The other one I saw is um, uh, on Wall Street when you have all these analysts out there, um, they they typically anoint one to be quote unquote the axe, uh, and the, the axe on Apple. His name is Gene Munster. I've known him for a long time. He's a really great analyst. He came out with a note this week that basically uh, said that he's done an analysis and um, he believes in the, within two years, Apple will be out with their entry. And he he called it more of a virtual reality headset, so uh, less augmented where you can kind of see through what's going on and more virtual reality. Um, no more specifics on that, but um, he did cite the Financial Times had an article saying that you know, quote, Apple has a secret research unit with hundreds of employees and they're experimenting with with AR and VR. They've done, I want to say, five or six acquisitions and, and hired about five to ten high profile folks in the genre. So definitely something going on at Apple. And there's also a patent that got filed uh, that looks kind of like the Sony or I'm sorry, the uh, the Samsung. Um, uh, what is it? The VR year. Gear and uh, it it's kind of more of a you know you mount your iPhone in there um, so it's gonna be interesting to see what what Apple does in this space. Yeah, I am looking forward to that. I saw it's slightly more geeky, but one of the things that got me excited about our forthcoming Oculus deliveries was a video game review by John Carmack. For those that don't know, John Carmack is one of the most famous game designers of all time. He he's the father of Doom and Quake and a bunch of other games. But he's also one of the pioneers in 3D rendering for games. And he was an early employee of Oculus Rift. And in fact, I think there were some lawsuits about his intellectual property when Facebook acquired Oculus. So he, on Facebook, is starting to write reviews of games that he has tried that are virtual reality based. So he he wrote a review about a game on the Samsung Gear and you read this detailed review and you're like, oh my God, A, his level of domain expertise is crazy. And he's, he's talking about these things that, that a mortal would never notice in the game. And he, it was a huge gift to the publisher of that game. And you're thinking like, man, this guy really knows what he's doing. And he's, he's holding VR to a really high standard. I can't wait to see what kind of titles he publishes for the Oculus, which is a much higher resolution device than uh, the the devices that are on the market right now. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. And with Valentine's Day around the corner, a couple ideas for folks listening. Number one, uh, treat your Valentine to a pre-order of an Oculus Rift. It won't be there the day, but you can at least give someone a piece of paper that says, I pre-ordered a Rift for you. Uh, And then I noticed earlier today that they are going to release the PCs that are optimized for Oculus Rift, um, and those will go on sale on the 16th. So again, you won't hit uh, the 14th exactly, but another awesome gift for the uh, quote-unquote geek in your life. Yeah, and you know, if you if you don't have the actual gift, if you bundle that with something like a new vacuum cleaner or a dishwasher, I feel like you would you would have all your bases covered. Absolutely. And everyone knows that that uh, folks love to receive those things for Valentine's Day. Exactly. That's my second uh, nickname besides retail ge- geek is the love doctor as, as <laughs> everyone obviously knows. <laughs> it's definitely your second distant second. Exactly. (laughs) But the retail geek in me wants to know about the same store sales data from last month. Yeah. So uh, we put this stuff out monthly. And as just a quick summary, if folks aren't familiar with this, uh, 
we we have about 3,000 customers at Channel Advisor, and we run a same-source sales survey, which actually tracks the transactions going through our software. Um, and January results are out, and it was it was a kind of a re, kind of a not a repeat, but a kind of the recurring theme from the fourth quarter. Uh, so the usual suspects overperformed. Amazon uh, came in uh, around seventeen percent, kind of above that e-commerce line of fifteen percent. Uh, Google PLAs slash shopping did very well. Other third-party marketplaces, uh, the piece of eBay that's parts and accessory did pretty well. It was about 12%. Uh, and then the laggards were traditional search, which is just getting eaten, eaten up by the PLA piece. Uh, and then traditional comparison shopping engines, which is getting eaten up by Google. Uh, and then the rest of eBay that wasn't, uh, that is not parts and accessories is kind of lagging. So, so a lot of the same trends that we saw towards the end of holiday continued through to January, which, which I guess is good. You know, there's this, um, I don't know if you watch, uh, you're, you travel a lot, so you probably aren't a CNBC junkie like I am. But um, if you watch kind of the Wall Street world right now, it's a little bit of blood in the streets. So um, this all started with some of the high-flying software names like uh, LinkedIn. It's not software, but social network. And then uh, Tableau, uh, they had some, their their earnings were good, but they kind of foreshadowed a rough Q1. And then suddenly everything went kind of crazy and it's kind of rippled into private companies. So you've seen companies like Zenefits, the CEO has been uh, moved aside. And so a lot of craziness going on in the world. So it's it's sometimes reassuring uh, when, when I look at the data to kind of say, okay, it's not the end of the world. You know, Amazon continues to outpace e-commerce and uh, all those good things. So I would call it kind of a middle of the fairway, uh, which felt pretty good given the the backdrop and the fear that's kind of going on at, uh, you know, as I watch CNBC. So I decided to turn CNBC off for a couple of days and, and I already feel better. Nice. I, yeah. You know, I anticipated potentially some worse retail news than we've actually seen. Like there have definitely been some some misses in retail, but but it seems like the the most common thing was, hey, we hit our guidance this quarter, but next year is going to be tougher than we anticipated, and so we're lowering our guidance. And so it, it uh, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but it, it seemed like a lot of people were taking the hit uh, for changing future investor expectations rather than their performance to date. Yeah, yeah. Within the retail sector, it actually has not been hit uh, in this last week as hard as the software. Uh, the two notable exceptions. Um, so I saw Sears is going to have to close stores faster than they originally thought um, was some new news. Um, and then you're starting to see some kind of stretching. So, for example, JCPenney is considering selling its headquarters and then kind of leasing it back to itself. So there's a lot of interesting things happening with some of these names like Sears and Macy's. I mean, JCPenney and Macy's where the real estate's starting to be worth enough that, and they have enough debt that they're starting to have to do some, some kind of unholy things to start figuring out how to unwind uh, some of the debt and replace it with the value of the real estate. So it'll be interesting to see how some of those traditional brick and mortar guys navigate that. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously a lot of those store closures have this ripple down effect. So if you're if the Sears is closing and they were an anchor in the mall, that that likely is going to have a derogatory effect on all the other tenants in the mall. I don't know if we got a chance to talk about it, but like a somewhat humorous antidote is in those those cities where Walmarts are closing, which is potentially like very derogatory for those communities because in many cases the Walmart came in and put the the small businesses out of business and now Walmart's going out and that that leaves that community like heavily underserved but there are a bunch of retail arbitrage guys going to all of these store closing sales at Walmart and buying all the goods off the shelf and putting them for sale on uh, the 3P side of Amazon and and uh, in some cases making some meaningful profits from doing that so much so that I even think there's a few apps that people have written specifically to scan barcodes inside of a store like Walmart and figure out what you should buy to go sell on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw one where the guy had something like 30 carts full of stuff and took six hours to check out, and they pulled up an 18-wheeler, and then all the stuff was on Amazon in like five days. Exactly. I feel like it's always my luck to be in line right behind that guy at the <laughs> checkout. <laughs> and there's one checkout open. 
Speaking of Amazon, there are a few little tidbits of news this week, right? One that I know is super dear and near to your heart. Yeah, this logistics story really won't die down. So uh, Spencer Soper over at Bloomberg, he did some um, pretty interesting um, digging and he found a leaked memo or I guess he got his hands on a memo from 2013. Uh, and what was interesting about it was they called it Project Project Dragon Boat. Uh, and the whole idea was to import directly from China to the U.S. into FBA um, through the manufacturer, skipping all the supply chain in the middle there, uh, including Alibaba, uh, and selling direct to Amazon consumers. Uh, and then you know, it went on to then say um, – an interesting part I don't think was widely reported was Amazon has this merchant fulfilled prime eligible program. And to use that as a merchant, you have to start using some Amazon shipping APIs. So this, this report um, seemed to intimate that that was a path to getting, if you could get sellers on that, then you could get sellers off of UPS and FedEx for non Amazon shipments. So I thought that was a pretty interesting kind of Trojan horse thing that I haven't seen out there before. One thing that occurred to me as I was reading some of those same articles, I was originally thinking of, of this in kind of two terms, replacing third-party services that Amazon used to pay for, now they could do themselves and take costs out of, and services that they could sell to other third parties like you know, replacing uh, UPS as a, as a delivery vehicle in the U.S. But there is this third class that seems like they, they have their eye on as well. That's all the cross-border shipments. So, you know, folks that buy stuff from Taobao or buy stuff from Tmall in China and deliver it to the U.S. or vice versa. And it looked like they were, they were eyeing being the in-in fulfillment partner for a lot of that. But they're also, all of these FBA sellers in the U.S., a lot of them are sourcing their goods in China. And it turns out that you have to be a pretty savvy logistics guy to buy your goods from the factory in China, get them packed up properly at that factory to get shipped to the U.S. so that you can put them in the the FBA ecosystem. And it could be a huge boom and a lot of reduced friction, you know, if Amazon's able to pick those goods up at that factory in China and onboard them into the FBA system system right there. You know, you could mm-hmm. uh, skip a bunch of steps and a bunch of paperwork that are, you know, frankly, only the most savvy uh, Amazon sellers are, are successfully doing today. Yeah. And, you know, you have to imagine all their private label stuff. Um could follow along that path as well. And, um, you know, maybe they develop more of that or, or even they could share back data to the Chinese factories and say, Hey, uh, you know, what did you call them? Colettes are hot. Go make $5 Colettes. Um, and you know, then didn't help bring them right in through FBA. I like the tie in there too, by the way, Scott, very like, like how I did that. Very impressive. That's all super interesting, but I heard there's a way more important Amazon news this week. Yes, we live in the backwoods of North Carolina here in Raleigh. Not really, but um, you know, we're like the number twenty metro, which means that you know we have to wait. If someone rolls out five things to a metro every year, we have to wait like five years for all the good stuff to get here. Uh, but Amazon did not disappoint, and within kind of I think eighteen months of them launching Prime Now, it is now here in the Raleigh Durham area. That was super exciting, um, and I'm pretty sure I got the first order, which was exciting. The uh, the delivery lady was a little freaked out by it, um, and we had some camera crews come by, and it was kind of fun. I had uh, the the local news media is always funny. This lady uh, and her crew came, and we were prepping for the interview, and her one of her prep questions was, "Now, how long have you worked at Amazon?" And I was like. Okay, let's back up a couple steps here. (laughs) And then I tried to explain what we do at Channel Advisor. It was not really landing. So, but we finally worked through it, and she understood that we were we were not Amazon. um, That we're just a partner, and um, that you know our role in the whole thing. So, I you know it was kind of a fun 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 situation to be a part of. Very cool, and I uh, I suspect you will find, as I have here in Chicago, that uh, Prime Now is a life changing amenity. Yeah, I've already done three or four um, orders, and it's it's been awesome. The thing that's pretty interesting about it is uh, they are using this program called Flex, and not a people not a lot of people know about this. So Flex is essentially like Uber for Amazon products. And um, what it's what's interesting it is you know as you know Uber has a program similar called Uber Rush, but I haven't seen a lot of adoption of, for that program. And part of the challenge is density. So 
you know, it doesn't make sense for Uber if you're checking out of Walmart, for example, or something to just have Uber bring you a couple of products. But what's interesting about this is the drivers tend to carry five or six loads. Um, so then the per per product um, fee goes, you know, can go down to kind of sub $4. Uh, they, they also have uh, a tip in there, which I thought was interesting, and it kind of defaults to $5 for your order. Uh, but, you know, the, the drivers we're seeing here in Raleigh are primarily using this Flex system, which is like an Uber Rush competitor. I think there hasn't been a lot of press that Amazon's effectively competing with Uber here um, with this, this program called Flex. And like any of these other Amazon things, what's to keep them from, you know, doing ride sharing with this? So I, I don't... Yeah, I don't have any indication Amazon's doing that, but I think if they had enough flex drivers, they could open up this system. It just shows you how fast they can build stuff. You know, they've they've built a uh, pretty much a competing Uber-like system with both the driver app and some piece on their side that kind of signals and says, "Hey, drivers, we have a package that needs to be delivered to Apex, North Carolina," and and you know, people raise their hand and respond to that and go get the package, etc. Um, so that. That I think has been overlooked in a lot of this prime now that Amazon's also building out this kind of on-demand um, ride-sharing infrastructure through Flex that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, uh, you know we've had it a little bit longer here in Chicago, and they're expanding the program this month to include restaurant delivery. So they're competing with the Grubhub's and uh, Seamless's and DoorDash's of the world. And I, I don't know this, but I, my suspicion is they're just expanding the the assortment of pickups for those flex drivers exactly as you you sort of imagine yeah uh, yeah that's exactly what, how they're doing that mm-hmm. yeah so uh going to be totally interesting i do feel i don't know if you saw the scene in the super bowl when they cut to peter manning's brother eli manning and he didn't seem completely thrilled for his older brother who was about to win a second super bowl and you could imagine Eli, who, you know, great quarterback in his own right, but probably not a first ballot Hall of Famer like Peyton. The one thing Eli had over Peyton was that Eli had won two Super Bowls. So you're seeing the little brother lose that one thing. And I felt very similar. You know, Raleigh uh, might be a slightly smaller metro than Chicago, but I feel like you're getting the Google Fiber and you have this great, vibrant startup community. And the one thing I got to lord over you was my prime now. And I feel like I'm I'm losing that. Yep. Yeah, sorry. You still have all the wonderful snow, though, so you can always hold that over my head. Yeah, I, I'm sad to realize that I'm the Eli Manning in our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's some interesting Michael Kors news. Did you see that? I did, and it, it's actually slightly odd. So I think we touched on this last week, but in their earnings call, and precursor, Michael Kors has aggressively been opening stores over the last several years. And in fact, people have speculated that they might be putting a little too much in stores. And so at their earnings call last week, they they had decent earnings. And one of the things they said was part of the reason is our stores are much more profitable than e-commerce, that it's e-commerce is very expensive, free shipping, free returns. It's hard to be profitable. And our four-wall profitability for stores is better than our, our e-commerce capability. And I take some exception to how they're counting and, you know, I'm not sure that that's a necessarily a sustainable trend that they're observing. But then this week they came out and said, and oh, by the way, a bunch of those stores we open are in malls and we're seeing a precipitous decline in traffic at those malls. And, you know, we expect our future performance to be challenged as a result of these mall based stores. Yeah, yeah, a little ironic. Yeah, seems like that would have been an interesting thing to include in the <laughs> in the earnings call. Yeah. When you were talking about your stores, to me these are all parts of the same same trend we're talking about. Like shoppers are down in malls, the anchor stores are are severely challenged like this year's in JCPenney's. To me that doesn't mean retail's going away. The uh you know that means a particular format of mall is is declining and not very popular, but I certainly think that as we've said numerous times, the the big challenge here is there is a big segment of shopping that's more convenient to do online and that these these higher friction shopping experiences in store are losing market share to online. And the thing I like to always remind people is we are ridiculously overstored in the U.S. So, you know, we have all these retailers that are public. You opened a bunch of stores last year. The investors expect you to grow just as fast this year as you did last year. So you have to open more stores. Whether there's a good justification for opening those stores or not, and we've been in this cycle for 10 or 15 years. And so 
A interesting stat that I, I dug up for tonight's podcast is there's this measure of gross leasable retail space, the amount of square feet available for stores in every country. And you divide the amount of square footage that's available by the number of people that live in that country, and you get this interesting metric called GLA per capita. So the United States has 24 square feet of leasable space for every man, woman, and child. Canada has 15, and the third most retailed uh, country in the world is the UK, which has five square feet per capita. So literally one-fifth the number of stores or one-fifth the amount of store space as the U.S. And so just to put things in perspective – we could close an awful lot of stores and still lead the world in in retail square footage. And in the UK, they're only open nine to five weekdays. <laughs> uh, partly true, although less so these days. Yeah, they, the French I think close even more because they they get the nice lunch break. Yeah, a little siesta. Yeah, That's Spain. Interesting. Uh, and so, say what GLA is again, in case people miss it. Yeah, so that's gross leasable space. So that's you know, a mall has. 400,000 square feet of space available for lease so that, you know, they, that's the amount of space that they have available. And then GLA is dividing that space by the population of the, the country that the mall is in. So I have a personal 24 square feet somewhere that I could just kind of go hang out a little 12 by two space is my, my allocated retail space. Exactly. And the one caveat there that that's shopping center GLA. So that's, the amount of space you have in defined shopping centers, malls and strip malls and things like that. That's not counting freestanding stores that aren't attached to a shopping center. Wow. Um, and so there's this other stat of just uh, square feet of open retail per per capita. But that is also very similar. Like we're, we're just fundamentally overstored in the United States. So a lot of the store closures are really about right sizing, not about the world necessarily giving up on brick and mortar retail. One thing I saw that you tweeted and I wanted to kind of get your a little more take on it was you had this um, article that talked about responsive design is actually not good for mobile conversions. And this is not an area I'm an expert on. I'm more of the, you know, hey, let's talk about Amazon and eBay and what's going on out there in the channel world. Um, uh, But when it comes to the actual storefront, that's not my area of expertise. And uh, I was a little perplexed by that because everywhere I go, um, every retailer has really worked really hard on responsive design. And, uh, you know, the big vendors like the demand wares and all these guys, that's a big kind of how they tackle mobile. Um, and then I thought it was interesting that this article said that's actually not the way to do it. What What's your take on that? Yeah, I think the word I used is toxic. A, uh, good job, Scott. We were just about to finish an episode on our target time, and then you got me wound up on a huge soapbox topic. <laughs> I think you've sort of hit the head of it. I feel like my industry, the ad agency industry, is somewhat responsible for this problem, all the guys in the black turtlenecks, all the creative directors talk about migrating to responsive design. And the solution for mobile is responsive design. And it's a super compelling story to a retailer that needs to have a better mobile experience than they have today to say, oh, man, responsive design. I code one website and that website, that code works on every device and and the page can intelligently reformat itself for flow to fit a whole wide variety of devices and superficially you go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's the easiest way to get a decent mobile experience. And my problem with the responsive design is that it's the easiest way for the website builders. It's not the necessarily the easiest or best solution for the users or more specifically in our world, the shoppers. And so the way responsive design works is it puts all of the work on the client device. So essentially, you have one set of code, no matter what someone's shopping on, if they're shopping on a smartwatch or a uh, an iPhone or a tablet or a Retina Mac, they get the exact same delivery from the web server, and then they use JavaScript to decide how to unpack that website and how to make it look best on each device. Um, and so the main thing they ask is, how wide is the screen? And then they adjust the layout based on the width of that screen. Yeah, I've seen that where you can kind of like, even on your desktop, you can stretch it in and the little menu kind of becomes a hamburger menu and you can kind of see it happening. Exactly. On the best sites, it's kind of cool because you can interactively uh, stretch that viewport and see it change. Yeah. 
But but two huge problems with that approach, or frankly, more than two. But but the, the top two in my mind, number one, what that means is you are sending a huge payload, a huge amount of code to every device. So imagine that you have hero images that are designed to look great on a Retina Mac laptop with 5,000 pixel wide screen. You're sending that 5,000 pixel wide hero image to an iPhone where it's going to show up 360 pixels wide. And so you're sending a huge amount of code to every device, and then the device is simply just deciding not to show 80 or 90% of it. So for a variety of reasons, smartphones are much slower than desktop browsers anyway. And then when you send that huge page load, the page gets incredibly slow. And we have all these depressing stats that even though bandwidth is getting better and better and wireless technology is getting better and better and phones are getting faster and faster, the page load experience for users is getting dramatically slower every year. And one of the problems is this adoption of responsive design. It just puts all the work on the client to do that. Another problem is it only cares in in the, the JavaScript that we use for responsive design. The, what we know about the device is how wide the device is. And so it turns out a Samsung Galaxy S5 smartphone and a HDTV have the exact same resolution. So they're going to get the exact same version of that website. But if you were a designer trying to create the best experience for someone that's on their couch shopping with a remote control looking at their HDTV, you would probably want a very different experience than you would someone that was holding their, their smartphone in their hand while they were standing in a Walmart store. And so my other big gripe is... We tend to know more about mobile shoppers and we have more insight into their context and we can change our experience to be relevant to their context. And the way we do all that is we do more of the work on the server side. We have the web server say, what device is this person on? What do I know about this person? What what uh, geography are they in? Are they in a store? Are they not in a store? Are they a known user? And do I have a bunch of data on them or do I not? And then based on everything I know about that user, I create a custom page on the server and send it just to that user. And most of the world, it's funny, this is not the actual correct term, but most of the world calls that approach adaptive design. Um, and so in the for the sake of simplicity, I'll roll with that, even though the guy that invented the term did, definitely did not mean for that that to be the description. And so in general, we talk about responsive design as being the laziest way to get a barely acceptable mobile experience. But when you really want to get beyond that, and you know we've talked a lot about the mobile gap and people are three times less likely to buy on a mobile phone, if you want to close that gap, you need a much more contextually relevant experience and you need to do something better than... Um, responsive design. And the the sort of flip quote I like to always throw out is uh, Avinash Kalik, the digital evangelist at Google, had this great quote last year, sites that aren't optimized for mobile suck. Responsive design sites just suck a little bit less. <laughs> so the answer seems to be the adaptive, but um, my best retail experiences on mobile are usually in apps. So is, is that what folks should do? But then it's hard to get an app footprint too, right? So it's kind yeah. of a bit of a conundrum what what if if responsive drools what rules yeah so uh not apps um for the reason you just mentioned like tough to make them sticky so the answer is pretend that apps don't exist and create the the world's greatest mobile web experience and so use adaptive or what google would call dynamic or what we would call server-side adaption. Learn as much about your users as you can. Give them this, this great, contextually relevant experience that's designed for a user on a smartphone, not a one-size-fits-all experience because you're too lazy to tailor it to each user. And after you nail that mobile web experience, which that's your most critical obligation of your e-commerce site, once you have that nailed, you can then say, cool, now I'm going to invest some cycles in building an app. And I know the app isn't going to reach most of my users. It, you know, I'll be lucky if it's sticky with 2 or 3% of my users, but those are my highest value users. And so totally in favor of creating a great app for your most loyal users, and you can absolutely increase conversion and AOV for those users, but you, you should not waste any cycles on that uh, unless and until you've nailed the mobile web. So stop making it easier for your developers and make it easier for your customers. Crazy. 
Well said, Peyton to Eli. <laughs> How about, um, and uh, don't want to get you in any kind of trouble, so yell if this is a third rail topic for you, but all the different um, you know, web store providers, what where are they thinking on this? Yeah, so here's the funny thing. They're, I give them all a mixed record. So the first thing is, if digital agencies can't talk about what the best techniques are, and if retailers can't talk about what the best techniques are, Salespeople for technology companies for sure can't talk about what the best techniques are. So the number one irony is all the major e-commerce platforms are designed to do this adaptive approach. They're designed to do this server-side adaption, and they have all the tools the developer needs to create a great mobile experience. And the, the darn salesman walks around and says, and it's responsive design. Or they say, and I'm, we're... We're bitching at the developers to make it responsive. <laughs> so the irony is most of the platforms have better capabilities than their own salespeople give them credit for. Um, and so on that side, I would give them a good score. Where I give them a bad score is once they build their e-commerce platforms, they tend to give you a starter store. They give you an example um, store that you can use as a basis. And most retailers start with one of these templates or accelerators or starter stores and they modify it rather than creating their own store from scratch. And none of the platform starter stores get this right. Like most of them, frankly, barely supported mobile. And now they're, they're starting to put a bunch of cycles into making them responsive. And they're, they're advertising that their great new feature is our starter store now is responsive for mobile. And, you know, for all the reasons we just touched, that's definitely not a, a recommended approach. And oh, by the way, when you look at who the leaders and laggards are in mobile commerce, it exactly correlates to how you built that mobile experience, that the the best retailers are doing these server-side adaptive native mobile sites, that the middle-of-the-road retailers are, are doing responsive design or outsourcing their mobile to a third party um, and that the worst retailers don't have a, a mobile experience. And that's the other thing that frankly drives me crazy. You look at you know a list like the IR500 and 38% of the websites on that list still outsource their mobile experience to some, you know, in most cases, frankly, pretty small third party. And so it's it's now over 50% of most retailers' traffic. It's like 60% of the time shoppers spend, and they're outsourcing it to this little vendor, which to me is exactly wrong. They've, they've got a team of dozens or hundreds of people in some cases. They're spending millions of dollars on their desktop site, and uh, they're, they're spending a small annual fee to have a mobile site you know, done by someone else. And ironically, they had to completely flip-flop that investment at this point based on the trends. Yeah, interesting. So I guess there's a bit of a silver lining. I'm, I'm, uh, it's news to me that the providers at least have this capability. It just kind of seems to be under marketed and understood by the sales team. So the good news is everyone doesn't have to read platform to get this or, or some kind of, you know, totally, uh, you know, dynamic thing that they have to do to change their business. So I guess that's a good news kind of element of the whole thing. Absolutely. It's a lot more about design and presentation layer development than it is about. Um, having to invest in super expensive new backend systems, unless you're on a really old version of whatever platform you're on. Cool. Well, I think it's always good to end the show on a controversial and passionate topic. So uh, I think this would be a good time to call it a show. I will look forward to catching up with you again next week. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 